Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nicholas Blinko about his book, More, than no- no- More Noble Than War, A Soccer History of Israel-Palestine, a captivating story of a conflict that goes back a century told through the powerful lens of football that, like a thriller, draws one in and doesn't let one go. Nicholas Blinko, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. That was a great intro. It's a pleasure to have you. It was a wonderful book. I wonder if you could begin by maybe telling us a little bit about yourself intellectually, how you got to writing uh, this book. Yeah, sure. I um, I met a, my wife, my then wife, um, who's from Bethlehem, in um, in about 1991, when we were both postgraduate students at Warwick University, we were studying philosophy. So really, I'm I'm a philosopher PhD, uh, and uh, she was doing her MA in philosophy too, um, and we kind of bond. At the time, she her English wasn't great, but she, I mean she's a brilliant woman, but her English wasn't great, and we bonded over words like ontology and phenomenology of spirit. Um, and then I'd, she invited me to her hometown and suddenly I was in this completely new world that I really knew nothing about, <coughs> excuse me, I really knew nothing about. I'd been so kind of closeted in, in French and German philosophy that I'd, I'd managed to miss the first intifada entirely somehow. And suddenly I was in Bethlehem at the tail end of it, meeting her parents, her mother, is actually a Russian who her father met when he was at Moscow State University. Her father, Anton Sansor, had set up Bethlehem University. He was a mathematician who then became a, a, an administrator and set up Bethlehem University. And it was just a, a complete eye-opener. And I really arrived um, as Oslo was kicking off. One of my first visits, Yasser Arafat was giving a speech from the from the roof of the Nativity Church, and that's well, you know, over 25 years ago now. It, it really started rolling from then. It was a really optimistic time, which you know obviously has soured so thoroughly. It's difficult to remember why we were so optimistic. But that that was my connection with the Middle East, and eventually, like 20 odd years later, it resulted in in two histories. I first wrote a history of Bethlehem a very personal history. And then, um, and then I, because I'm a huge football fan, I, um, I had this idea of trying to tell the story, just tell the story of Israel and Palestine, the 20th century story through football, because football is, is really important to the Middle East. I mean, it's really the, the sport of the emerging working classes of the Middle East, but it, it's also a sport that was incredibly political right from the start, especially amongst um, the Jews who were settling in Palestine at the turn of the 20th century up to the 1930s, because the teams were only founded by political parties. They were the they were the youth wings of political parties, and the same was largely true of Palestinian teams too. So it was an intensely political sport, but it was still a sport, and people played together. And so it's a way of seeing how the conflict looked. I mean, I made this joke from the football field, but kind of from the ground up, it, it's how it looks to people who are just out enjoying themselves or hanging out with their friends or trying to build teams or institutions. And so it, it's a kind of grass... It enables you to tell a grassroots story, which I, you know, I hope works. I, I think it works well. No, I th- I think it worked beautifully, and indeed, uh, you know, it's as much the story of the more fundamental, and that's globally true, inseparable relationship between sports and politics, as it is the evolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as well as the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians, or is or Israeli Jews and Israelis of Palestinian descent mm. in the in the state of Israel. I mean, it's a story that even through football one can tell in different ways. 
it strikes me that one way to start maybe is to elaborate on the role that sports in general, soccer in particular, played both in, in both Jewish and Palestinian nation and state building. Mm. Um, well, f- for the Israelis, uh, well, for the, at the time, the, what they, the Jews of Palestine who turned themselves, turned themselves the Yeshuv, these sporting organizations weren't focused on football. They were focused on um, on sport, um, but really more like gymnastics. It, it was a time when uh, sports associations did basically militarized synchronized drills that had a gymnastic component, but also had a whose real aim was to build up the spirit of the kind of military core. And so the club that became the Maccabee, um, Israel's most famous sporting association, was really a kind of boys' brigade that taught military-esque skills to the, the young Jewish kids of Jaffa at the time. This was before Tel Aviv was built. And the, the Yishuv was largely centred on, on the port, Jaffa. Uh, and a really odd thing about the Maccabee at that time was that the person who led them wasn't Jewish. He was a, a Christi, of Christian descent. He was Russian. And he'd been employed because he was a soldier. The, the, the local um, Jewish association, who were called the Sons of Moses, employed him because he was a soldier. Um, he was also a guy who did security on the on the farms that they ran, and also was an overseer who was kind of, you know, looking after the Palestinian labour at the time. So basically, they employed a tough guy with a military background to teach their sons to be tough too, to to learn the art of self defence and and drilling, marching up and down in the in the hot sun. Um, so. Uh, I say he was a Christian, but it, it was an odd sect. They're called the Subotniks, and they're um, a Christian Sabbath sect in the Sabbath, in the sense that they'd move, they'd read the Bible very closely, took it literally, and moved, decided to move the Sabbath from Sunday to Saturday, which they felt was more in line with the Bible and also more in line with Old Testament practice. So they they became Old Testament devotees which in turn they kind of reinvented themselves as Jews by default and moved to Palestine from Russia and at one point around around the turn of the 20th century perhaps a fifth of the people who identified as Jews were actually Subotniks Um, they hired themselves out as kind of security force security force people they became the roots of of the, what became the Yishuv's military force, who at the time were more about, um, more gangsterish, really. They, they, they forced other Jewish companies to only employ Jewish labour and were employed by Jewish, Jewish political associations to kind of enforce this Jewish labour law. Well, not law, but a Jewish labour practice. Uh, so that's the weird roots of this kind of Maccabee and a proto-military organisation that it wasn't really entirely Jewish to start off with, although it became Jewish and um, and as as, in, as inward immigration into Palestine took off, the Subotniks were no longer a significant presence. Although you know some significant Jewish Israeli Jewish figures do have a Subotnik background including Ariel Sharon, whose mother was Subotnik. Um, anyway, that's the Maccabees. They were really to do with military stuff until the 1920s. Um, they had played football because the kids were very keen on it. But it was really only in the 1920s that they, they completely embraced football, um, partly because the kids enjoyed it, but partly because it offered a route to international prestige, and this was because of FIFA. Um, 
the, the head of the Maccabees at the time, who was a, a young guy called Joseph Yekutieli, um, who'd he'd fought in the Ottoman army as a teenager, been in prison and wasn't allowed back into Palestine by the British because he was an Ottoman soldier up until until about 1920. But when he came back, he joined the Maccabees and very quickly rose to become the head of them. He'd been a, a gym instructor in the Ottoman army. And he tried to get the Maccabees recognised by the International Athletics Association, so with the goal of leading a Jewish side out at the Olympics. But that that hit a brick wall very, very quickly because people said, well, how can you lead a Jewish team out representing Palestine when the Jews are such a tiny minority in what's um, a largely Palestinian Arab country? So that that hit the buffers. And he can't, Yekutieli, who didn't really have a feeling for football, he was another gym instructor and drill sergeant, basically. He turned his attention to football, the, the coming sport, and managed to get uh, the Maccabees recognised by FIFA as kind of the governing body of football in Palestine. So um, the Palestine Football Association, which was formed in 1929 by Yekutieli, was basically a Maccabee, Tel Aviv Maccabee organisation. So that's that's the uh, that's the Israeli side of it. Um, the Palestinian side is that again, football was very important, but globally, football was taking off as a working class sport, and in amongst Palestinians, that's not really the story. What what had happened instead was that English style public schools were teaching football. Um, perhaps because it suited the landscape better than than other traditional public school games like rugby and cricket. And the first the first ever football team in Palestine was the the team of St George's School, which is the Anglican school in Jerusalem. Uh, and this was really you know the young aristocracy and the young wealthy kids who were playing football. They like football because they like football. It's a great spectator sport. And it's a great sport to play. But they also liked it because it, they got to kind of travel around the region and represent Jerusalem and represent you know, their, their class among similar um, young aristocrats and young wealthy kids and merchants, kids of, kind of Lebanon and Egypt. Egypt had victorious, the Victoria School, which was um, in Alexandria, which also had a football team. Lebanon had a... Um, the Protestant College, which became the American University. And so they played these schools and toured around and entertained them and entertained other teams that were coming into the country, like British engineers teams and uh, British soldiers teams. So that was that was in the initial Palestinian take on football, that it was, it was a sport for uh, public school boys. But by the 1920s, there was a rising Palestinian working class too, in in the same cities as the rising Jewish working class. I mean, it really was Jerusalem, Haifa, and Jaffa, and and so um, the football teams emerged from uh, local associations, church associations, mosque associations, uh, but they also emerged from kind of the new political parties or um, trade unions. And it was the Youth Congress in the 1930s was one of the big ones. But before that, there were really important teams from the Jaffa Orthodox Boys, of, obviously from Jaffa, um, the Sporting Association in Jerusalem, the, the Arab Sports Association, um, and the, these form leagues for a very brief period, participated in the Palestine Football Association, but were kind of alienated very, very quickly by the Maccabees. And, um, and so they set up their, their own leagues under, under the, um, the youth... Uh, I've forgotten the name of it now. The, 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 the political party, the, 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 well, the 
Arab Youth Congress, I believe it was called, yes, which had football teams and the league, and that became the Palestinian League. So throughout the 1930s, two leagues were operate, two national leagues were operating in competition with each other, the Maccabee League and the, and the Palestinian League. And for a very brief time, there were three leagues because um, the Jewish sides fell out amongst each other with the left-wing uh, trade union side refusing to work with the Maccabees. So for a very brief period, there were three national leagues in Palestine, a socialist Jewish league, um, a nationalistic Maccabee league, and a nationalistic Palestine league. That was a long answer. If I, if, <laughs> if I can just pick up on a few things that you said yes. um, before we go further, uh, starting off with the Sabotniks or uh, the Bnei Moshe, the, the sons of Moses, mm. uh, there are Two things that struck, strike me about them. One, one was the Subotniks were Russian migrants, basically, mm. who really didn't want to be part and were not part of the Zionist movement as such. And as you sort of described with, um, uh, in the case of Ariel Sharon's mother, mm. who basically through marriage finally assimilated into Jewish society. But in a lot of ways... There seem to me to be similarities between the Bnei Moshe, the sons of Moses, and evangelicals, or at least some of the evangelical communities. Mm. Well, there clearly were. Um, I couldn't really tease it out entirely in a book about football because it would have been an enormous sidetrack. But um, the money for the Yishuv for the Yishuv to expand was coming from two sources in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And that was evangelical Christians in Germany, England and America primarily. And then from Jewish associations, which were also in England, France, uh, Germany. I'm not sure to what extent it was in America at that time. Perhaps the Jewish community wasn't large enough in America at that time. Uh, but they were working in, in really in cooperation. So, and certainly the English evangelicals were working in cooperation with the Jewish-English charities. So the money was really coming hand in hand to build up, um, to build farms, to create farms, to buy land. And the sons of Moses, uh, you, you pronounce their name much better in Hebrew than, than I can, uh, but the sons of Moses were, were really were proxies for buying this land because they'd taken Ottoman citizenship, so they were legally allowed to buy land. They were the overseers of the land, so they, they were really managing it on behalf of the real owners. Um, and they employed, uh, employed subotniks often to provide security. Uh, the the um, the German, you know, the, in in Israel, what's now Israel, you have these um, these small areas that are called things like the the German uh, is it German commune or is it the German uh, German colony? The in German Jerusalem colony, yeah. The German colony was um, uh, which is around the area where the sports associates. The sports, the Maccabee Sports Stadium is now, uh, or the first sports stadium was. That the German colony was a German Protestant colony, but it was run uh, in partnership with the local, the local yeshuv, which is why the sports stadium was was built there. Um, yeah, so the, the links were very, very close with the evangelicals materially, but also kind of ideologically, because Jews just hadn't really taken the Bible literally up until um, up until the 19th century. It's one of those uh, strands uh, of Israeli and Palestinian history, for that matter, that uh, actually play into contemporary politics. But I, I, I want to come back to the figure of um, Yosef uh, Yekutiel, mm. who really was much more certainly immediately after the uh, creation of the State of Israel, uh, who was much more than just the father figure, uh, or the father of 
Jewish-Israeli sports. Mm. He was also the man in charge immediately after uh, the establishment of the state, uh, in charge of um, co- the confiscations of what were termed abandoned Palestinian properties. Yes. And if I'm not incorrect, family of his was very important in the development of Israel's nuclear program. Yes, his son. Um, I mean, this was the real, the real shock of, uh, of my research, that Yosef Yekatiali wasn't just the founder of the Palestinian Football Association, but he was the guy in charge of the abandoned property law, which was passed immediately Israel became a state. They passed this law, and it was to seize or to nationalize all of the land that they could. Uh, a lot of Palestine was kind of common land, so that that was nationalized easily because they just took it to what had been kind of Ottoman state land became Israeli state land. But there was an enormous amount of private land uh, which they uh, took by passing this absentee landlord thing. If you weren't there on a certain date, uh, which was the formation of the state of Israel, it was assumed that you were um, that the property was abandoned, and Joseph was in charge of was really the the bureaucrat responsible for this. I mean, he was an incredibly talented bureaucrat. This is why the his Palestine Football Association really took off because you know he was a guy who could organise things like that, but he could also organise the abandoned property law. And um, I mean, I speculate that he he perhaps used the Palestine Football Association records to, um, to you know, to, to list who was in the country, who who the landowners were. But he certainly used, they used any records they could find. Um, they very uh, Israel very quickly confiscated all public records, and um, and the, these were used by a bureaucracy in order to trace. Uh, the owners of all the land and to confiscate all of the land. So, yes, Yosef Yekatelli is a a fascinating figure, but he does have this, um, I I guess you'd call it a dual role. He both created football, but he also helped the dispossession of the Palestinians. It's kind of a side note that his family also created the the nuclear bomb, but... uh, his family are um, were largely scientists. His grandsons are. Um, I spoke to two of his grandsons. Uh, one's is a statistician and one's a mathematician. But I accidentally called. I think I described them both as mathematicians and was corrected by the one who actually is a mathematician that that one was a statistician. I'm, I'm from the arty side and did, didn't appreciate the difference. You want to feel better about what you eat, but sometimes it's hard to prepare healthy meals that also taste good. With Saqqara, you can reach your health goals without sacrificing taste. Saqqara is a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients, and they're designed to boost your energy, improve your digestion, and get your skin glowing. The menu of creative, chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners changes weekly, so you'll never get bored, and it's delivered fresh anywhere in the U.S. Along with delicious meals, Saqqara has daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition. To boost results, try the best-selling Metabolism Super Powder, an all-natural remedy for bloating, weight gain, and fatigue. Sakara has received rave reviews from places like the New York Times, and I can tell you that they sent me a sampler, and it was pretty terrific. The meals tasted great, and all you do is eat them. No preparation necessary. And right now, Sakara is offering NBN listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash books, or enter the code BOOKS at checkout. That's Sakara S-A-K-A-R-A, dot com slash books to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash books. Try it today. You spoke in your initial remarks also a bit about uh, uh, Yosef's use of sports and the, the Palestine uh, Sports Association to um, 
try and get international recognition of yes. uh, of the issue. And again, it, it, it's interesting because it's one of these strands that plays out today. But it even more so it, in terms of, and you, you know, you, you mentioned that also at the beginning, just the incredible importance of, of sports, particularly football, and the whole evolution of the Middle East uh, over now more than a century. You know, the 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 Jewish immigrants to Palestine were really the first ones to see sports as a way of gaining international recognition. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, roughly 40 years later, uh, you had the Algerians doing the same thing. And in many ways, doing very, very many of the same things that Yosef Yakutieli was doing. So the Algerian FLN, the liberation movement, fighting the French, had its own national football team ah. um, uh, touring the world. They played in 53 countries, and that's what put the Algerian liberation struggle on the map. And you see the same thing now in the battles that have taken place uh, within FIFA over the last uh, maybe 10 years, mm. in which uh, the Palestinians, who are a member, they're the only member of FIFA, who technically are not a state, but they are a member of FIFA and have abused FIFA to try and get recognition of Palestine as a state, but also to try and counter what they see as repressive or discriminatory Israeli moves. Mm. Uh, yes, that FIFA was the first international body to, to recognize Palestine, and it was regarded as a real coup at the time. Um, uh, and it was certainly a very, very popular event in Palestine. It happened in about, I mean, the, the date's in my book, but I believe it was 98, which was right. far, far earlier than, than uh, any, any, any other equivalent international body recognised the state of Palestine. Um, but as you say, Josef Yekatieli saw it much, much quicker. Um, he was trying to join the international... Athletics Association as early as 1923 and finally joined FIFA in 1929. Um, I didn't know about the Algerians. That is a fascinating story. I, I, I should look into that. I'm fascinated by that period in Algeria, partly because of my philosophy background. Both Jacques Derrida and Albert Camus were, were, were in Algiers at that time as Algerians and and had very, very different experiences. And I've always wanted to write about that. <coughs> Sorry. Um, actually, there's a, a chapter on Algeria in my book, if I'm not incorrect. Mm. And I've also written papers about it. But back to, back to the interview. Um, you know, obviously, the focus is on Israeli, Jewish, Palestinian, Jewish, and Palestinian uh, soccer, but you also had Armenians and other ethnic teams, and you had military teams. Mm. And, and and maybe you can talk a little bit about whether the sort of picture that you've, parallel picture that you've portrayed of Israeli, Jewish, and Israeli, Palestinian, or Palestinian soccer, uh, whether that was also true for teams that were of, of a different ethnic makeup or, or identified ethnically different, and also pop perhaps talk about who these military teams were and what their role was. Yes, I mean, it, it's, it begins to get a very, very complicated story, but um, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire famously saw these massacres and genocides against minorities from Anatolia. Uh, there'd always been an Armenian community in Jerusalem. I mean, this dates back to, basically, to the Crusades, so they'd been there for a thousand years, uh, but it was a very small community. And but at the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the First World War, a larger number of Armenians came into Palestine and settled really exclusively, um, almost exclusively, in Jerusalem and Bethlehem with a smaller community in, in, Bethle in Jaffa. Uh, as usually happens, there were two political parties, a kind of a left 
a slightly more left-wing one and more right-wing one. And they both set up football, set up political associations who set, then set up football teams. So there were Armenian football teams at the crucial period in the 1920s playing football. Um, there were some slightly more obscure uh, uh, ethnicities. Um, the Kobe the Koba team uh, that was in Amman in Jordan was uh, a team set up by, I think you would, you would say Chechnyans, but Circassians. The Circassians uh, turned out largely to be Chechnyans. So there was a Chechnyan side in, in Jordan who also played because it was so close. Um, and, I mean, the, these were very... The, Certainly, the Armenians were very political sides. So you got political Armenian sides, political Jewish sides, and emerging political Palestinian sides. And the British got there. Um, the governor of Jerusalem at the time had already been um, in charge of Cairo, and he'd seen, he'd seen, as you describe in your book, just how powerful um, football teams could be and how kind of destructive their fans could be when they got on the streets and started taking charge of a revolution. So they were very anxious that what had happened in 1919 in Cairo didn't happen in Jerusalem. And they tried to bind all of the football teams together into an association. Just interrupt you for a second, just for our listeners. You basically had when... uh, the governor you were uh, referring to, Robert Storrs, you had the foundation of Al-Akhli, which is one of Egypt's most storied clubs. And that's where, uh, essentially, on its grounds, it was founded as a Republican, anti-monarchist, anti-British club. And it was on its grounds that the uh, protests and, uh, and the revolution was, uh, was prepared that in 1919, that in 1922 led to Egyptian independence. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really glad you did. Uh, uh, that, that's a really important context. So be- because the revolution had really been driven by football fans, as indeed it was more recently, uh, Storrs really didn't want this to happen in Jerusalem. And he set up the first league, which was based around the Jerusalem Sports Club, and then a national league later on was was uh, was kind of handed to the Maccabees. But to start off with, it was a league set up in Jerusalem by Ronald Storrs, um, and it wasn't just uh, Armenian, Jewish, and Palestinian Arab teams. It was also military sides. In fact, it started off with with military sides, and they invited other teams in. Um, the police started playing too. And these were the initial leagues. Um, So the military sides were the RAF, the um, the medics. Uh, The RAF tended to win. There was a team called the Gaza Bedouins who weren't Bedouins at all. They were another RAF team. Uh, the, The Palestinian police force, the Jerusalem police force, which would have English, Jewish and Palestinian Arab players, probably the only teams to ever to have that that mix until the present day. Um, and well, this this was the initial league. They played for the Palestine Cup, uh, but Ronald Storrs was uh, was sent to Cyprus in the mid nineteen twenties. Uh, there was an idea when um, a new conservative administration came in in England in the mid-1920s to kind of uh, give more power to the colonies and the empire uh, to to try and deregulate the empire, essentially. They wanted to give more power to the locals. And this is really when the Maccabees took over the football associations under Josef Yekutieli. And Increasingly, the the military sides played less of a role. For a brief period, uh, Palestine was kind of demilitarized, so the military teams weren't even all that good. 
and you finally got um, a kind of real national league administered by civilians, but in fact administered by the Maccabees. Um, and that lasted for about two years. But Palestine got very violent in around 1929 and, um, and everything changed. If I recall correctly, you opened the book with a visit to Palestine by Hakoach Vienna, which was an mm. Austrian Jewish club and was one, if not one of the, uh, if not the largest uh, club in Europe. And I'm wondering what, whether you can, what that, that whole uh, event and the, and the rise of Hakoach Vienna tells us about the relationship between Jews and sports and what impact that had on yeah. uh, certainly Palestinian Jews. This is really the, the more important event. I mean, Josef Yekatieli could have any ambitions he wanted as a, as a sports leader and sports administrator in Palestine, but it just wouldn't have worked if football wasn't popular. And football wasn't really all that popular with Yosef's own community, which was a Russian, very much a Russian community, uh, as the Yishuv had been from the, from the late 19th century. But in the 1920s, as the British started pumping money into Palestine and doing grand infrastructure projects, and as also the Yishuv started building Tel Aviv into a city, there was an enormous amount of work certainly for the first five years of the 1920s. And working-class Jews started to come from Eastern Europe. And they had an incentive to come because the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, led to a rise of ethnic nationalism and xenophobia in all the little countries, the new little countries of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Jews didn't have an incentive to necessarily stay if they couldn't find work in a chaotic situation. And there was a, there were reasons to go to Palestine. So they started to come in, but they were coming from cities that had embraced football for a generation. And they were good at football and they loved football in a way that um, the Russians just never had done. And when they arrived in Palestine, they wanted to play football. So Josef Yekatieli's plan to embrace football was really held because football was just booming and a key event that showed how popular it was was the, the Viennese team, Hakoa, visiting. They did a, a short Middle Eastern tour where they played in Cairo and Alexandria, where they really played British military sides and an Egyptian side. But when they got to um, Tel Aviv, uh, they stopped at Tel Aviv train station, which was a brand new station in a brand new kind of suburb that was turning into a city of its own a suburb of Jaffa, but was on the brink of turning into a city. They were greeted by thousands of local Jews at the train station, and then 10,000 local Jews turned out to watch them play. Uh, they played the Maccabee Tel Aviv side. But b before, the, before the football teams came on the pitch, there were kind of there were these marches, militaristic-style marches, gymnastic displays, brass bands. You know, it was a real kind of proto-national event staged by Josef Yekatieli to welcome an, another Jewish side, but also to say, um, you know, welcome to, to this huge, thriving Jewish community. Uh, and it showed, it showed the world how how popular football was in, in Palestine. It, well, it showed Jews around the world how, how, how thriving the Jewish community was in Palestine. But immediately this happened. There was a rift because the football team that played Hakoa were really a Russian side. And there was a return visit to Vienna to capitalise on, on the initial event. And again, it was Russians who went. And the kids from kind of uh, the countries that would become Hungary, Austria, uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and had moved to Palestine, were looking at this team and going, well, we're better at football than them. And they believed they were, they were the, but they were stuck in the youth side. They couldn't get into the Maccabees. So they split with the Maccabees. They said, you know, to hell with you. 
especially when the Maccabees went to Vienna and were, were given a per diem. So they were kind of being paid to be professional footballers whilst the younger kids were being frozen out. So they said, well, to hell with you. And they set up their own site, which they called the Allenby, because the core of this new team lived on the Allenby Street, which is in Tel Aviv. Uh, but very quickly, they were picked up by the trade union movement, by the uh, what became the Israeli Labour Party, and, may, and turned into the flagship team of the trade union movement. So very quickly, this little rift, which was a rift between Russians and Austro-Hungarians, became a rift between bosses and workers, and also between kind of the conservatives and the socialists. And this really has characterized uh, Israeli sport ever since. You have two big sporting associations, um, one linked to this, one linked to the trade union movement, and one linked to the bosses, and it's the case today. <coughs> Sorry, that brings me to uh, you know you spoke a lot about Yakutieli, Maccabi, um, obviously Hapoel, the socialist labor party uh, or, or, or labor movement. Uh, a strand within the Zionist movement, and you've described, or, or, or basically, essentially that how uh, uh, how Hapoel was mm. the cradle, if you wish, for the Labour Party. Yes, that ultimately rose to govern Israel for the first thirty years of its existence. Mm. You know, so you had Maccabee, you had Hapoel, and you had Beitar, which was a far more militant, far more nationalist. Yeah, they emerged later. Uh, strand within the... Sporting uh, Association. Uh, you know, strand within the Zionist movement. Mm. And in a lot of ways, the battles that were fought, at least in the initial period, were much more between the three Jewish tendencies mm. than between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and, you know, they were each other's fiercest rivals. Mm. Perhaps you could elaborate a bit on that. Yes, well, um, the two big sporting associations in the 1920s were, as you say, Maccabee, which was associated with the Russian bosses, and Hapoel, which is a trade union movement. It means the workers. Um, and that was associated with not just socialists, but with the new Jewish immigrants who came from non-Russian countries. Um, but at the end of the 1920s, a new movement had started, um, which is Betar. The, the story that Betar largely tells is, you know, tells of its own genesis, is, is of um, is, my, my memory's just gone. Who's the, who formed Betar? Um, the, um, the First World was War. Was it Jabotinsky? Yeah, Jabotinsky. Basically. So, yeah, it's Jabotinsky, who was um, an ideologue um, who toured Europe and set up various Betar movements in Poland and other places. And he's a, a, a revered figure, Jabotinsky, amongst the right-wing parties of Israel today. But when I looked at the football team, Jabotinsky didn't really play that much of a role because he just wasn't in the country. The, the teams were set up by local um, local merchants, local industrialists and local kids in the Yishuv, starting off in Jaffa and then in Jerusalem. Um, they were set up independently. And where they got the members from was peeling them away from the Maccabees, who they thought were really sold out under, by trying to get international recognition and playing nice with the British and really being in the pocket of the British because the British gave them the power to form the football associations. So Betar were peeling Maccabee kids away by being more right-wing, by being more militant, by being more racist too. Um, and in, in Jerusalem, they, they started marches on the, on the Western Wall, um, which caused fights 
with the, the Palestinians of Jerusalem. Um, the, the, the later massacre in Hebron was a direct response to the murder of uh, Palestinian Arab reporters in, in the Jerusalem market the week before. This was the 1929 massacre. The 1929 Hebron massacre, yes. Uh, was a response to um, a murder the week before of a porter in the Jerusalem market by Betar boys. So Betar was was a political association, um, but also a football team. And it started in Jaffa, but the Jerusalem side, which uh, was formed in 1933-34, was... Um, extremely right-wing and became the core of a terror terror group that in 1936 uh, caused a bombing, uh, perpetrated a bombing that at the time was the largest terrorist attack that anyone had ever seen. So, yes, uh, Maccabee and Hapoel were rivalries with each other and Betar came along and was a rivalry of the Maccabees peeling them away, but was also, um, was also, you know, straightforwardly a kind of terrorist, uh, racist terrorist organization. And two of its members identified openly as fascists right through the 1930s. So it was, it was clearly a right wing European group, um, but today, Betar Jerusalem is, is one of the best football teams in the country. And this, this uh, past isn't really as widely remarked upon as perhaps it should be. Although Betar Jerusalem, and, and you, know, you mentioned uh, the terrorist group, the, the Stern Gang or Lehi, mm. which was t- included to later prime ministers of Israel, mm. Nachem Begin and um, Yitzhak Shamir. Yeah. But even until today, Beitar is uh, widely seen as a racist club. It's the only uh, Israeli, or certainly top-flight Israeli club uh, that has never hired a Palestinian player, even though Palestinians play a very important role mm. within Israeli soccer, that has thwarted attempts to hire Muslim um, players uh, has is con- continues to be violent. Yes, and is the darling of the uh, the right wing political elite of Israel today, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Yes, and obviously Netanyahu's father was the secretary of the founder of Betar Jerusalem, who was openly a fascist. Uh, so one presumes that. Netanyahu's father was also a fascist because otherwise, why would he be the secretary of the guy? He was uh, Netanyahu's father was also the the editor of the Betar newspaper in Jerusalem, and in the late 1930s became the um, was the Betar representative in New York, so played a key role in in um, in. in in popularizing Zionism with Americans at the close of the uh, Second World War. Uh, the, the link between the kind of what's basically a terror group with a football team attached in the 1930s and the Bitar that emerged post-war in the state of Israel is something that I tried to tease out because the demographics had changed completely in that kind of short period of less than 20 years. Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem wasn't necessarily a city that the founders of Israel wanted to live in because it w- it's a bit hard to, to imagine if you've never been to Israel, but Jerusalem is rather inaccessible. It's taken them a long while to build a fast train that's only just opening now, uh, you know, this year, that connects Tel Aviv with Jerusalem. Uh, the port cities and all of the business has always happened along the port, and 75% of the country lives, lives along the coast. So in order to, in order to pop, populate Jerusalem, 
the the founders of Israel really had to send force people to live there, and the people they forced to live there were the new immigrants from places like Iraq, especially from Iraq. Um, and the, uh, these communities from the Arab-speaking world, who were often called the Second Israel, were sent to the more inaccessible cities, which is Beersheba and Jerusalem, uh, and other southern and northern cities, to populate them. And so uh, Betar Jerusalem's fans were drawn from these largely Iraqi Jews, uh, which worked out because football was far more popular amongst Middle Eastern Jews than it was amongst, uh, say, Russian Jews or religious Jews. And religious Jews had always lived in Jerusalem. So uh, this is in the 50s and 60s and 70s, Betar was kind of reborn as a second Israel side and a team that was supported by Arab-speaking Jews and Beersheba the same. And this is partly the explanation for the success of Betar Jerusalem, that it had such it had fanatical fans who understood football and loved football more than people really did in Tel Aviv, where football had always competed with basketball as a popular sport. But although there's a difference... Sorry, go ahead. uh, Yeah, although there's a kind of big difference between the fans of the 1930s and the 1950s, it's as though the Iraqis of Jerusalem absorbed the mythology of Betar and perpetuated this mythology of being the most racist team. And Betar sing songs like, you know, we're racist and we're proud. They have banners called for declare they're forever pure, which means pure Jewish. They also sing you know, offensive songs about religion, they're the religion of Arabs and Muslims and Christians. And so they are the most racist team, but they're, they're not kind of intimately connected with the original founders, except uh, the Likud party kind of preens itself and appears at the stadium. But the, the fans themselves are often... Of um, you know of this Middle Eastern Mizrahi extract, uh, and there's yeah, no look. reason for Betar to be so so racist because Beersheba just simply doesn't have the same tradition, even though it's made up of uh, people from the same demographic roots. I I wanted, wonder whether you can touch a bit on uh, the importance of Israeli Palestinians within soccer there. Uh, they're basically proportionally overrepresented if one uh, in terms of uh, if one compares it to uh, the percentage of uh, Israeli Palestinians among the total population. Mm. They're also among the country's best players. It was a Palestinian player who uh, scored a goal in a World Bank in a World Cup qualifier that uh, was crucial for Israel. Mm. Um, and, you know, in, in a sense, maybe in contrast to Betar, this player was from Bnei Zachnin, mm-hmm. which is widely viewed mm-hmm. as a Palestinian uh, team, mm-hmm. particularly because it comes from a, an Israeli city that's primarily populated by Palestinians. But in effect, it's a multi-ethnic, multicultural team. Yes. Um, <coughs> oh, sorry. <coughs> sorry. Yeah, if, if you haven't been to Israel... You again, you, you might not understand the extent to which the country is divided. Cities are either Jewish cities or they're Palestinian cities. You could argue that Haifa is mixed, and uh, it kind of is. But on the whole, people live in their own cities. And so a football team that comes from a Palestinian city is a Palestinian side no matter that it employs, maybe employs a Jewish coach, has half Jewish players or even more than half Jewish players, it's still a Palestinian side. And the most successful Palestinian side is uh, Saknin, which is a very small place. It's, it's entirely um, Palestinian Arab. It's uh, not much bigger than a village. Um, 
a heavily crowded town of about 30,000 people up uh, near the the Sea of Galilee in the mountains between Nazareth and and Galilee. So it's a real backwater, but thanks to kind of genius administrators um, who founded the team out of two two earlier teams, it's become a real powerhouse in, in Israeli football and a miracle because it's got a very small operating budget but manages, well, in fact, it dropped out this season, but it's, it's had an incredibly successful run at staying in the top division um, and often lauded as the, as the team of all Palestinians of Israel. Um, as you said, Palestinians are overrepresented in football. They're, they're about uh, 20% of the country. But when you start looking at the football teams of the country, they represent about 40%. I mean, these are all mostly in the lower leagues. I followed a team called, I followed the, the, the Arab Orthodox team of Jaffa for my book because they're, they're, the, they're kind of the same team as the 1920s team. And it enabled me to tell this continuous story. But they're in a very low division these days. And they're in kind of the fifth division. Um, and most Palestinian sides just don't have the money. They're very local teams. Um, and they play in the lower divisions. But they are members of the, of the Israeli Football Association. And as such, 40% of the teams of the Israeli Football Association are Palestinian. Um, with Sakhnin in the top league, and well, until this season. And another couple of decent teams. Nazareth has a good team. Um, and Lod Lida has, has a good team too. So those three teams are kind of the best Palestinian sides in the country. But they do struggle, and they really struggle because they don't get the sponsorship. Also because they're not parts of, part of the associations that um, the Maccabee, Hapoel and Betar, which the government uses to disperse national funds. They lose out on national funds too. So... They're very much the poor cousins, but they do power football because football, as odd as it might seem, is a is is the indigenous sport of the Middle East these days. It, it's the it's the sport everyone loves. It's also a sector where the Palestinians can, in a way, level the playing field, isn't it? Yes, uh, football is a very cheap sport to to play, and. Um, Palestinian Arab politicians have made this point over and over again that you don't need an ice hockey rink, you don't need expensive swimming pools or equipment, yachting equipment. Um, all you really need is a football and um, and some goalposts, and you're away. So it's it's a sport of poor people, but you can over you can overstate that. It's also a sport that people love. Footballers have had a high reputation amongst Palestinians, dating right back to the turn of the 20th century. Um, Palestinians like their football players. And in some ways, Israeli Israeli Jews don't respect footballers as much. They see them as kind of bling, you know, people who are, uh, you know, a bit stupid and will splash their cash around not smart like maybe basketball players are seen as being smarter guys who are less flashy. Yeah, they see football players as being flashy. And so you've got different reputations and um, the Palestinians are proud of their football players. Palestinians this is, are really proud uh, of their football players. This is a fascinating story and we could probably chat for another hour but I fear that we're running up against the clock. Um, Before I let you go, though, maybe you can talk a little bit about what's next for you. What's your next project? Um, Well, I've been trying for a long while to get a a film of one of my novels off the ground. It's been optioned a couple of times, and so I would love to do... um, do some screenwriting and drama in Israel and Palestine. I'm not sure about another history book. I found writing two back to back absolutely exhausting. So I'm going to just take my time 
but I will definitely be returning to it. It's it's a place you just can't stay away from once you've once you've got to know it. It drives you mad, and half the time I'm incredibly angry about it, but I'm also always energized, and um, that that keeps drawing me back to the place. Indeed, it does, Nicholas Blinko. It sounds like you had a breather as well deserved. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book and take care. All the best, James. Thank you again.